Glad you're here, especially if you just came at Christmas Eve and you've just found us. We have a special treat for you today. Michael Francis, one of the top money earners in mob history, big mob family. You're going to hear the story of how he survived in prison, how he survived a hit, uh, and how God has gotten a hold of his life. It's an incredible day. We're really glad you're here. So why don't you help me welcome... Hey Michael, Michael Italiano. Hey Michael, Michael Italiano. Hey Michael. Come on everybody, Italiano. Ladies and gentlemen, will you welcome Michael Francis? <laughs> Thank you. Did you uh, realize that Pastor Tim was so talented? <laughs> I laugh every time I see that. But anyway, good morning. Glad to see you all. And um, I got to tell you, coming from California, when it rains out, people stay inside. You people, uh, you know, courageous to come out in this and kind of brings me back to when I grew up in New York, all this snow. But uh, it's great. We made it here. I don't know if we're going to make it out tomorrow, but we're here. So it's great. But, uh, you know, I was just watching that, that Goodfellas piece, and um, it reminded me of a time when I got home from prison, Goodfellas had just come out. And so I told my wife, Cammie, I said, come on, let's go see that movie. A little nostalgia for me. You know, I knew all of those guys. And uh, you got to understand my wife. She doesn't want to read about me. She doesn't want to watch any. She, she never read my books. She don't watch any of the television shows. She said, I lived through enough of it. I don't have to see anything, right? I said, come on, let's go. She says, okay. So we get into the theater. Me in the theater, if you know me, I don't share my popcorn with anybody. I'll buy you one, but I want to eat it myself. That's part of the, the whole movie experience, right? So I'm... I start to eat, and we're there, and I don't know if you saw the movie, but it's, it's kind of graphic, and it opens up kind of rough. So she's sitting there, and uh, right away I knew I made a mistake. She turns around to me, and she said, is this what your life was really all about? I says, honey, it's a movie. They make things up. It's Hollywood. Just watch it, right? Now I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit nervous, and then we come to this part. And they go, and there's Michael Francis. She looks at me, and says, come on, honey, let's go. Got up, and... <laughs> We left, you know. Fortunately, that's all, that's all they said. I went back and saw it later without her. But, uh, but uh, anyway, just a little uh, trivia about the, the movie. But anyway, really great to be here. I thought we had wonderful services last night. And I have to say this, you know, I was really looking forward to coming back here because the people at Parkview have been so wonderful to me throughout the years. Many of you I still uh, am in touch with on uh, Facebook, and I got a lot of, you know, nice... Um, uh, welcomes when I got here and on my way here, so I thank you very much. Hopefully it'll work out today, too. Um, I know 11 o'clock is, is the big service, and judging by what we have here, I think it'll still be pretty big. But it was great last night, and I do have to say this again, uh, because they deserve it. I travel this country quite a bit. I've heard every band that you can imagine, every worship band, and I will tell you, this band really rocks. They are great. So. And, you know, every time I come to a church, my prayer is just the same. I have a real challenge. You know, God started working in my life, as he has in many of yours, from the time I was born, really. And it's really a long story. And, people, I would love to share with you uh, the course that God really navigated for me to get me to where I am today. But, obviously, we can't do that in a half an hour, 30, 35, 40 minutes. I've been going over a little bit in the last two services. And the only reason that happens is because I pray that the Holy Spirit puts the right words in my mouth so that uh, He can reach out and touch the hearts in this room that He wants to touch. So it is a challenge to try to get that because I take this very seriously. I'm not coming up here to entertain you about the mob life. If you want to do that, I'm on three television shows on cable. You can watch all of them. I take this very seriously. I think God has given me a purpose in life. And uh, whenever I speak, no matter how big the crowd or how small, I really try to fulfill that purpose because that's a commitment that I made to Him. So, and I realize I'm not here by accident. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into getting a speaker up here on the stage. A lot of preparation, a lot of things that have to go on. And none of you are here by accident. Now, some of the guys out there, I know this for a fact. You don't come to church, maybe first time you've been here in a while, but you figure, hey, Sopranos is off the air, let me go see what the real mob guy is all about, right? That's okay. Whatever God uses to get you in the door, that's okay, but it's not an accident. And I realize that if you're here, God wants to plant the seed in your heart. And I want to make this very clear. I'm not here to turn you into a Christian, and I'm not here to impose my faith on you. I'm here merely to share what the Lord has done in my life, and He'll take it from there. 
And I know that seeds will be planted this morning, without a doubt. I'll be out by the book table. Somebody's going to come over to me like it happened last night, like it happens in every service. And they're going to say, Mike, I was the one person that needed to be here. God really spoke to my heart, really touched me, and he's going to thank me for that, or she. And I'll say, great. Happens every time. And some of you are going to walk out of here this morning, and you're going to say, ah, it's a good story, but I heard it before. You're going to walk out of here, and you're going to go about your business. But I will tell you this. It might take 20 years before God waters the seed that is planted in your heart this morning. But once God's got a hold of your heart, He will never let you go. So you may as well make it easy on yourself and start today, because God is going to get you at some point in time, no doubt about it. And um, I want you to take a really good look at me. I'm probably the most blessed, most fortunate person that's ever going to walk on this stage and address you about anything. And the reason I say that is because had I been left up to my own to do what I wanted to do in my life, follow the path that I was on, I'd either be dead or in prison for the rest of my life. And quite honestly, it's what I deserved. It's what I earned, having spent 20 years on the street every day, and I mean every day, in violation of both God's laws and the laws of man. And I did it knowingly. I did it willingly. I knew exactly what I was doing. Nobody pushed me into it. My father at first tried to keep me out of the life. I made the choice to go into that life. And I believe now the reason that I'm here is to be an encouragement to all of you. Because if God can do what he's done for me in my life, and what has he done? He's given me my life. He's given me my freedom. He's given me a wife that I adore, children that I love, a ministry that I never asked for. And if he can do all of this for me, then he can and he will do it for you. Because at one point in time, people, I was probably the worst person in any room that I was in. And I mean that. I'm not proud of it. Believe me. I'm just very, very blessed. And when you look at me, don't say, Mike, this is such a courageous thing that you did, you know, walking away from that life. I don't look at it as being courageous. I just believe I was very blessed. There was a lot of guys in that life that could probably have done the same thing for me had they been as blessed as I am. But for some reason, I was the one that, that God chose to do this. And I take it very seriously. So I want you to be encouraged this morning. Because I know as I stand here and look at you, some of you are really struggling out there. I travel this country quite a bit. I'm in a different church every week in a different venue. I'm in front of a thousands of people on a monthly basis. I hear from that many more. Social media, you know what it's all about. And I can tell you this. In the last two and a half years, I have never in my lifetime witnessed the amount of struggling, despair, heartache in the hearts and minds of people as I have in this past two and a half years. We are in some real trouble here in this country. This is not our country's, uh, our father's America anymore. Things are changing. People are going through a lot of struggles. Now, you may not think so. You know, sometimes you look to the left and the right and you say, oh, why does that person have it all together? That family's doing so well and I'm struggling. Let me let you in on a little secret. Everybody's got something they're dealing with. People are losing their homes. People are, about, are out of work. Kids today are going crazy. When 70% of kids, okay, are born out of wedlock in certain areas, and another 25, 30% of white kids born out of wedlock, these kids grow up, they don't even know which way to go. A lot of stuff happening here. And some of you are struggling so bad, you say, you know what, God can never straighten my life out. I can never be forgiven. I can never find my purpose in life. I want you to look at what he did in my life is an example for all of you and be encouraged because I believe that's what my purpose is now. So hopefully that's what you're going to get out of this. And, um, and like I said, people, I take this very seriously. Selfishly, I hope that when you walk out of here, you're going to walk out a little bit differently than when you walked in. And that's really what it's all about. So um, my dad, underboss of the Colombo family back in the 60s, you know, it's funny, when I come to Chicago or some of these places back here where you know about the mob stuff, when I go down south or out west, I have to do a little mob 101. Over here, i got to worry about nobody's back there that still might be upset with me, you know, when I walk out of here. But I think it's cool here. But um, you know the whole deal. Very powerful position uh, back in the 60s. And my dad was a very, very high-profile guy, kind of like the John Gotti of his day. So I kind of grew up in this. I grew up really hating the police hated law enforcement, hated the government, because I idolized my father and I looked at them as the enemy. They were always around us, always trying to harass my family, harass my father, as, as I saw it as a kid growing up. I idolized him. And um, he originally didn't want this life for me, wanting me to go to school and be a doctor. 
You know, and uh, I got to tell you, my father, regardless of what anybody said about him, he was extremely supportive of me, good husband to my, to my, uh, my mother, a great father to all the kids, great guy. You know, I always tell this little story. When I was uh, a kid, I played uh, all three sports, kind of like a jock in school. My dad would never miss a game, no matter what he was doing, mob business, legit business. I'd be playing ball, he'd show up. And I'd be playing baseball. I was really a baseball player. And uh, I'd be up to bat. i look out at the corner of my eye. Here comes Dad. You know, he'd drive up in a big black Lincoln or a black Cadillac. That's the car he drove. He'd always come late, so he'd never go to the parking lot. He'd come right up to the field, right? He gets out of the car. He's always dressed sharp in a suit. Dad never dressed any other way. Always had five or six guys with him. He would never travel alone. So they'd get out of the car. They'd start walking out to the field and into the stands. I'd be up to bat. The umpire takes one look at that crew. Never called strike three on me when he saw Dad. <laughs> You know, I played football. Nobody would tackle me when he was in the stands. I would say, hey, Pop, you know, it's good to have a dad and a mom when you, when you play sports. But uh, he was great. Got in some real trouble in the 60s, indicted for several crimes, uh, beat a lot of those cases. But then in 66, I believe, he was uh, indicted in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. Went to trial, and after a lengthy trial, he was convicted and later sentenced to 50, 50 years in prison. That was the longest sentence for a bank robbery conspiracy up to that time. And in 1970, after he lost all his appeals, he was shipped off to Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas to do his time. I was a pre-med student at Hofstra University in New York. I was devastated when Dad went in. Figured he was 50 years old at that time. Add 50 on top of that, he'd never come out of prison alive. Just as an aside, today, my dad is 96 years old. He'll be 97 February 6th. He's done 35 years in prison since 1970, in and out five times, each time on a parole violation, and each time for associating with another felon or somebody alleged to be an organized crime. Can't do that when you're on federal parole. When I was on parole, I had 526 people on my separation list. Feds give you a list. Some of them I never heard of. Some of them were dead. They don't even let you go to a cemetery and meet with anybody. Feds are tough. And my dad had a hard time with that. He'd come out, thought he was being covert, meet with somebody, they'd surveil him goes back five times. And um, I went to see him three or four years ago. He was in the penitentiary in uh, Milan, Michigan. I said, Dad, come on, man. You're 92 years old. You've got to stop meeting people. He said, son, what do you want me to do? I don't know anybody that's not a felon. He said, even you're a felon. I said, I know that, Dad, but you're allowed to see me. We finally got that. I was, I was number one on a separation list. It took two years to get off of it. Today, my dad uh, is still in prison. And uh, his release date is 2017. He's got to live to be 100 if he gets out on this one. And, uh, you know, one of the hardest parts of my ministry is ministering to my dad. You know, it's tough with family. I talk to him about Jesus. He wants to talk about mob stuff like I never left, you know. But uh, he's coming around. I want you to pray for him. And I believe he is accepting the Lord. Uh, you know, he'll talk about it a little bit. And then I hear him cussing somebody out on the other end of the phone. So I don't know. But he's, he's rough around the edges like we all are. But keep him in prayer. His name is Sonny, and I'd really appreciate that. He's the oldest living federal inmate, and he's the oldest living made man in America. My dad's part of this life uh, for over 66 years. He goes back to Luciano, and he's got a million stories, the whole bit. But um, so Joe Colombo was a boss in my family. He kind of took me under his wing when dad went away. I started to meet a lot of my dad's friends. Mike, why are you going to school? If you don't help your father out, he's going to die in prison. Because people, I will tell you this. My dad did a lot of bad things in his life. So did I. I went to jail for 10 years for a crime that I was guilty of. But that particular crime that he's done all this time for, he was innocent of. No doubt about it. I'll take that to my grave. My dad was no bank robber. He was framed on that case. But you know what? It's what I tell young people all the time. You put your hand in a fire long enough, you're going to get burnt. This system is not always fair. You get a bullseye on your back, they're going to come after you. Is it right? I don't believe so. I think we've got a government that's supposed to play by the rules, but who am I? You know, the justification is, well, you got away with a lot of stuff, so we got you for something you didn't do. I don't know. I'm not going to debate that. That's up for everybody to decide. But I will tell you this. You know, growing up feeling about the police the way I did and about the government, it's amazing how God can not only transform a heart, and I think you all know he can, but how he can transform a mind, people. This whole distorted sense of view I had growing up with good is bad and bad is good. God has been able to fix that. And today, some of my dearest friends are in law enforcement. And not because we share information. I don't do that. We're just friends. And I found out that really in the body of Christ, everybody is all one. And I, I tell you, I have a real heart for young people. I've got seven kids of my own. 
I spent a lot of time in prison with a lot of these young kids coming into the system that, you know, their, their life was so screwed up, they didn't have a chance. And uh, so I devote a lot of my time to meeting with these gangbangers, going into high schools, middle schools, the whole bit, and really trying to deliver a message to them. And they listen, because I got credibility. I grew up, I've been there, done that, and, you know, I can get through to them. And I just want to lay this out for you, because I think this is very significant. This is something that they do pay attention to. I tell these kids straight out, you are who you hang out with in this world. You pick the wrong crowd, you hang with the wrong crowd. I don't care if you come to church every Sunday, got great parents, drive a good car, go to a good school, you're going to be known to be the bad type of person. You must surround yourself with good people in this world. I will tell you this, I wouldn't be up here today if I didn't have people around me that supported me, that kept me straight when I was going astray. Because look, you come to Christ, you know this, you don't get a lobotomy. You don't forget all the things that you did in the past. I don't forget the things that I did. I can snap back there in a minute if I had to. Okay? But you've got to keep people around you to keep you straight. And for those of you that might be in church for the first time, some of you may say, you know what, I don't need to go to church. Church is in my house. You know, I practice church every day. I've heard so many people say that. Church is in my house. Church is not in your house. Church is in church. Church is where you come and you sing worship music and you praise God, where you're around like-minded people that love the Lord, where you hear a great message that prepares you for the week that you take into your house. Yeah, you live you know, your, your faith all the time, but church is here. You need to be around these kind of people. I need to be up on this stage as much as many of you need to be in the seats out there. It's nourishment for me. God knows me. He knows where to keep me, and I'm blessed for that. So understand that. I go see Dad in Leavenworth. Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. He was upset. I said, if I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. He was very upset. No, I wanted you to go to school. You're going to upset your mother. I said, she's already upset. She knows my decision. So he said to me, okay, son, because I was pretty headstrong as a kid. He said, if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. He said, go home. He said, somebody will be in touch with you. You do whatever you're told. That was it. He didn't prepare me in any way. He didn't say, this is what's required of you. This is what you're going to have to do. Nothing. Just go home. Somebody will be in touch with you. My dad knew me. He knew I had it in me. And I didn't question him. I didn't say, well, hold on, Dad. You know, I grew up. I watched you. You never sat down and really explained things to me. But, you know, I know your life is different. What do I have to do? What's the qualifications? Tell me what this is all about. I never even questioned him. I said, okay, because I love my dad that much. I would have followed him to the ends of the earth. And you know, when you finally come to Jesus, and you have this relationship with Jesus, and I'm sure many of you have, have experienced this, you're going to look back in your life, and you say, God, you know what? It all makes sense now. Now I understand why you put this person in my life. Now I understand why you allowed me to go through this joy, why you allowed me to have this struggle. Allowed me, not caused me to have this struggle. I don't believe God ever causes us to have struggles. He allows us to go through them. You're using all of these experiences, all of these people, to prepare me for what my purpose is in life. And as you sit there, let me tell you something. You do have a purpose in life. God didn't bring you into this world just to live every day and accomplish nothing. And I don't mean accomplishing a business or anything like that. Yeah, we all got to survive. But God has a purpose for you. Every single one of you have an individual talent or gift. You know, when you live long enough, you realize God didn't put you on this earth just to do what you do, and then one day you lay down, close your eyes, and it's all over. There's more to it. You were put on this earth for a purpose. And the sooner you realize that, the better it is for you. And this meeting obviously was very significant. Because when Dad said, go ahead and do it, I had blind faith. Blind faith. How many of you have blind faith out there? How many times have you heard that Christians are supposed to have blind faith? Don't ever question God. Don't challenge Him. He's God. He's going to get mad at you. Well, let me ask you this. How do you love somebody? How do you come to faith if you don't question it? God didn't make you a robot. He didn't put you on this earth and not give you a free will. He gave you a free will. He said to you, my son, my daughter... You can choose any one of a hundred faiths, so you don't have to choose any faith at all. But I'm the real one. He gave you that choice. When I came to Christ, I challenged him. I said, God, wait a second. It was because of this meeting with my dad. I said, I trusted my father more than anything. I followed him to the ends of the earth. I did whatever he wanted me to do. And look where it got me. And it got me in a really bad place. I'll get to that. Take it a step further in my life. 
I took a blood oath. I surrendered my life to La Cosa Nostra, Halloween night, 1975. I gave it all up, body, mind, and soul. That's how you survive in your life. I said, God, I did this twice. I can't do it a third time. If you really are God, if this Bible is the blueprint for my life, written by men but inspired by you, and if you're taking it a step further and you're telling me the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ, no gray area, black and white, Jesus Christ or nothing, well, if you're telling me that, God, you're asking a lot of me. You need to prove it to me. You need to show me the evidence. And people, I know a little bit about evidence. I've been to trial five times. I've been to four of my dad's cases. I've been to more grand juries than there are people in that section of the room. I've been to more parole hearings that you can imagine. I know every standard of proof that exists in our criminal justice system, not by choice, but by necessity. This was my life. Evidence has been a major part of my life. I think in terms of evidence. I'm kind of a cynical guy. You grow up on the street, that's how you are. You're not selling me the Brooklyn Bridge. You've got to prove things to me. And so it was natural for me to question God. And when I did this, man, I'm talking specifically to you now, because I do a lot of men's groups and I hear a lot of feedback. And all the men say, well, you've got to show me, and then they don't want to look. If you ask to be shown, you've got to look. You've got to do the work. It's like anything else. When I finally opened up this heart and my stubborn, cynical mind and said, God, show me, and I did the work, I found out this. There is more evidence, more hard factual, cold evidence to prove that the Bible is truly God's Word and that Jesus is our risen Savior, because I'm not putting my faith in anybody that's dead and buried in a tomb. I learned long ago, dead people don't help you. There's more evidence to prove that than there is anything else that exists in the world. And if you don't give yourself the opportunity to prove that, you're stealing your life from you. God isn't taking it from you. You're taking it from yourself. So if you do anything when you leave here, you make it your business to do the search. Don't take my word for it. You don't have to. God doesn't need my support. Do the work, and you'll come away believing, as I do, as passionately as I do, in Jesus Christ. Now, I have been questioned. Well, Michael, yeah, it all sounds great, but you know what? You've never seen God. True, I never did. But I'll tell you why I believe so passionately. When I came to Christ, it was a little different for me. From the time I was this, year, this high, my dad told me, the standard that you have to live up to in life, you have to be a man's man, Michael. You have to have integrity. You've got to treat women the right way. You've got to have power. You've got to have discipline in your life. All these things I heard from the time I was this high. You've got to be a man's man. And when I got into the life, I looked up to some of the guys I thought were men's men. Fat Tony Salerno was the boss of the Genovese family. I idolized Tony. I liked him. He had power. You know, he was a funny-looking guy, but he was just a man of integrity, I believed. Carmine Persico, my former boss, now doing life in prison. My father, Sonny Francis. I looked up to these guys. These are the guys that I emulated. I wanted to be like them. So when I came to Christ, realizing that Jesus was a man, you know, sometimes we forget that. We see him hanging on a cross. We see sometimes, you know, the head down. And we don't see this powerful man that he once was. Well, I, I did something different. I separated his manhood from his deity because I said, hey, he was a man. I got to see what type of man this guy was. Because if he wasn't my type of guy, I don't know if I would have been able to follow him. As strange as that sounds, it's the truth. So I separated his manhood, and I studied Jesus the man. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, flesh and blood, heart and soul, mind and body. And people, I was blown away at the manhood, the character of Jesus of Nazareth. You want to know something? He was the only true man that ever walked the face of the earth. And I was so drawn to him. And this summer I had the blessing to go to Israel. And I walked the Via Dolorosa and I went every place that Jesus went. And I was just blown away. The feeling that I got to be, to be in the same place that this man was, was amazing. And I can go through a litany of things that I was so impressed with. So here's the thing. If I try to emulate Jesus in my life, and men listen to this. You try to emulate Jesus. Now, of course, we can't ever get up to that standard. He was perfection. We're far from it. But if you strive to be like Him, here's what happens. You become a better husband. You can't help it. You become a better father. If you're a boss, you become a better employer to the people that work for you. If you're an employee, you give your boss an honest day's work. You're a better person in the community. You benefit 
throughout your life and everybody around you benefits throughout your life by trying to emulate the manhood of Jesus. And if you're wrong, when you die, you're dead anyway. So what did you have to lose? But if you're right, and we know we are, then we have all of eternity to gain. So think of it that way. And you want to know something? There isn't a person out there that can argue about the manhood of Jesus as it's recorded in the New Testament. You can't argue. It's perfection the way it's written. And you know what people do at that point when I bring that up to them? And I'll go, let's go line by line. Let's see how he dealt with this issue. Let's see how he treated women. Let's see how he spoke about this. You go line by line. Nobody can argue with it. You know what they do at that point? Well, how do you know the Bible is real? Well, Jesus is a myth. They go back to that old argument, and there's so much evidence to the contrary. But they won't argue about the manhood of Jesus as it's recorded in the Bible. So you go out there and you strive to emulate Him, and you will be a better person, and He will come into your heart, and you will be closer to Him, and you see how your life will change. It's like I said, people, you don't just sit here and wait for the magic wand to hit you on the head, and then all of a sudden you're a better person. You've got to do the work. We live in the real world. You've got to get through all of this. But you do the work. You get closer to Him. He will get closer to you. And your life will change. And if you look at me for anything, look at me as an example of that. I'm far from perfect, people. I have a lot of imperfections. I get it. I look in the mirror. I know who I am. But I struggle and fight every day to try to do the right thing because I love my family. I don't want to go back to jail. I don't want to do all the wrong things. I got the right people around me. And I try to get closer to Jesus. And you know something? When I make a mistake now, you know what it is? It bothers me. I've developed this kind of God conscience. Now, I might do it anyway. I'm telling you the truth. But it bothers me. That's the sign of a Christian. Not perfection. I know we always get knocked when we make a mistake. You know, a Christian big shot is supposed to be all closer to God. And look what he did. Well, where in the Bible does it say that we're supposed to be perfect? It says just the opposite. That we're going to be imperfect. But you know what the sign of a Christian is? When you do sin, and you will, you're convicted. It bothers you. You'll get on your knees. You'll pray, God, don't let me do this again, and you will get better. There's no doubt about it. Sin will not be the pattern in your life. You get closer to God, and He'll solve that. I leave there. I'm in this, like, pledge period after I see my dad for a year and a half, and uh, you got to do anything that you were told to do to prove yourself worthy. After about a year and a half, I did prove myself worthy in their eyes. And people, I want to tell you something, and again, I don't say this out of any pride, okay? But if you're worried about the sin that you committed, think of this. That life at times is very violent. And if you're part of the life, you're part of the violence, there's no escape. And if anybody tells you differently, they're either not being honest with you or they weren't a made member in that life. And you know what I'm talking about. And I tell you this because I know that some of you are struggling. I know it as you walked in here this morning. And after about a year and a half, like I said, I proved myself worthy. Halloween night, myself and five other gentlemen took an oath and became sworn, made members of the Colombo family. I came into the life. You come in as a soldier. I was motivated to do two things. Wanted to get Dad out of prison. Told you about that. And I wanted to make money. My dad says in this life, you make money, it translates to power. I was very, very motivated. I was fortunate. I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. No need to go into it. You saw the DVD. I, was, I went on to make a lot of money. I was very aggressive on the street, worked 24-7. That was my goal. You make money, you rise in the ranks. 1980, boss of my family, Carmine Persigo, said to me, Mike, you're doing a good job. He made me a cop of regime, captain. Very powerful position in that life. From 1980 until about 95, I operated in that capacity. And I want to tell you where I was in 1984 when I believe God started to make this transition in my life. 84. I'm a captain in a family. They were grooming me to be either the boss or the underboss. The boss had a son, Ali Boy Persico. He was my gumbada. He baptized my first son, and we were going to take over the family, boss, underboss, whatever way it worked out. That's what our fathers were grooming us to do. I became a major target of law enforcement, indicted five times, went to trial five times, beat every case, beat two federal racketeering cases, beat Rudy Giuliani in 1984 on a major racketeering case. I was the first major mob guy he indicted under the RICO statute. In, my, in the courtroom, the day of my arraignment, Rudy came up to me the day I was getting bail. He said, Francis, if I convict you on this, you're going to get double what your father got. You're going to get 100 years. That's the kind of time they would give mob guys in New York in the 80s. I remember standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. I said, hey, Rudy, bring it on. 
Beat your guys four times already. Let's go for round five. And I got to tell you something. That's the dumbest thing in the world you can do. You don't ever antagonize them anymore. They don't need more incentive to come after you. But I was arrogant, dumb, and didn't like them at that point. But fortunately, after a seven-month trial, I was acquitted in that case. Uh, some of my co-defendants were convicted. They got 30 years. I lose that case. I'm not here today. I'd have gotten at least 50. So I beat that case. Um, to be honest with you, I was bringing in 8 to $10 million a week into my operation. I was in the gas business. We were stealing the gas, the taxes on ga gallons of gasoline. I had my own jet plane, my own helicopter, house in Florida, house in New York, house in Marina del Rey, California. I had 300 crazy guys under me ready to do anything I told them to do to prove themselves, prove themselves worthy. I had it going on. 31 years old, top of the world, Mom. Got all the money that I need. Going to be the boss of a major family. I had it going on. Now, did I believe in God back then? Sure I did. Why? Come on, people. We're all intelligent. It makes sense to believe in God. I don't care what faith you are. Okay, you got to believe that all this came from somebody or something. Do you believe in a Big Bang theory? That all of this intelligence, everything that we see, this beauty, everything around us, all of a sudden just happened out of nowhere? It doesn't even make sense. I don't believe in evolution. I don't believe I think I got anything in common with a snail or a crocodile or a worm or a flower or a plant, other than the fact that we were made by the same Creator. And let me ask you all of this. Evolutionists say and believe that we came from apes. Well, if I came from an ape, why are apes still here? Did some of them decide to stay ape and some of them said, no, I'd rather be human? Ask an evolutionist that. You're going to get the most concocted, crazy response that you'll ever hear. Because they try to justify their belief. Because it doesn't make sense. There's more holes in the theory, theory of evolution than there is in Swiss cheese. It doesn't make sense. God makes sense. But did I have a relationship with him? No. He was doing his thing. I was doing mine. Then something happened. Among many things I was doing, I was making movies. And I want to cut to the chase on this. I was making movies. Smokey Robinson was a friend. He brought me a script for a breakdance movie at the time. So we're going to film this breakdance movie in South Florida. I bring in um, cast and crew from L.A. to work in the film and um, 50 professional dancers. And we're in pre-production. We're in Florida. Beautiful day. Guys, you'll appreciate this. I'm sitting by the pool. We're just hanging out, getting ready to film in a day or two. I'm sitting there. All of a sudden, out of the water comes this gorgeous 20-year-old girl. I see her, I'm blown away. It was like a Pepsi commercial, right? Everything went in slow motion for me. I'm not kidding. Gorgeous. She comes out of the water. I'm immediately attracted to her. I try to make my moves to get with her. She didn't want to have anything to do with me. For, for weeks, I had to pursue her, right? 20 years old. She didn't, want, she didn't care who I was. She didn't want anything to do with me. One night, finally, I get to talk to her a little bit. We were having a cast meeting, and uh, she comes out of the meeting, and we're talking, and she tells me she's from Anaheim, California. Disneyland, right? She used to dance in. And uh, in the conversation, it comes out that, I uh, forget how she put it, she's a girl of faith or a Christian or whatever she was. And, well, I'm Catholic. We got something in common. Let's talk, right? You know, anything to get to know her better. And I wasn't happy with the fact that she was a Christian because I'm going to be honest, I had different things on my mind. So like Christianity, I got to deal with that too now, right? You know, long story short, we get to know each other a little bit. She tells me, you know, after the film wraps, you got to come home and meet my mother. Yeah, no problem. I'm good with moms. Let's go, right? We get on a plane. I go home and meet Irma. I want to only tell you this. That woman was the most godly woman I ever met in my life. You meet Irma for two minutes, your name goes into her prayer book. She had a prayer book like a telephone book. I'm not kidding. And uh, she didn't have to know your name. She saw you on a street corner. She'd think you needed help. Your name goes in a prayer book. Guy on a street corner. You come to the house at a delivery boy. She didn't see something that she was supposed to see. Your name goes in her prayer book. It's amazing. But I'll tell you this. I believe that woman prayed me to where I am today. That's how much I believe in the power of prayer through what I saw this woman's life was all about. It was unbelievable. Loved her to death. And um, again, cut to the chase, I fall in love with Camille. And I realized that Jesus really meant something to these two women. Now, I wasn't buying into it. I'll be honest with you. But I respected their belief. And I had been in my life for a while, you know, things were getting rough, and I said, you know what, if I want to be with this girl, I'm going to have to make a choice, because my life is a direct contradiction to everything these women believe. This is not going to work. So when I decided to leave the life, people, I want you to know something. There was no noble reason to it. I didn't leave the life because I was in love with God. I left the life because I wanted the girl. I made a choice. It was totally selfish. So people, oh, Michael, what a great thing you did to leave that life. No. 
I wanted the girl. That was it. And I was used to taking what I wanted at that point in time. So here's the deal. As we go along, I'm going to marry Camille. They're going to indict me on another big case. So I had a plan. Here's my plan. I'll take a plea. I beat the government so many times, they're going to want to get some time on me. I'll marry this young girl. I'll move out to the West Coast. I'll do a couple of years in prison. No big deal. We still had parole back then. I was under the old law. When I get out, I'll have parole and probation. I can use that as an excuse to stay away from the guys in New York. Maybe after 10 or 12 years, they'll forget about me back there. I'll live happily ever after with Camille out on the West Coast. That was my plan, plain and simple. I had nothing to do with God. You know what? We don't know how God's going to get our attention with me. It happened to be through a beautiful woman. There's no doubt that she was put in my life to bring me to where I am today. And if you see the course that's been navigated over the past 20 years, it's undeniable, people. It just is what it is. I'm not making it up. It is what it is. She wasn't the first beautiful woman I met in my life. But there was something about her, and that something was God, because He had a plan and He implemented it through her. Plain and simple. Sometimes we complicate a lot of things, but when you cut it down and you cut to the chase, you see what it is. God had a plan. And I want to tell you something. I'm not the story here, people. My wife is the story. This girl had no clue about anything. She's a young Mexican girl, Mexican-American from Anaheim, California. She never met an Italian guy. She didn't know anything about the mob. She saw the Godfather once. That was it. She had no clue. And you don't have mob stuff out there. They don't really know what the story is. And I'll be honest with you. So out of left field, God hit me. I never met a Mexican in my life. I never even ate a burrito before I met my wife. We didn't have Mexicans back in New York back then. So God put us together out of nowhere. She's the story. Five years in prison. Death sentence. Father disowned me. Contract on my life. Feds all over me. I get out of prison 13 months on parole, the worst time of our life. I'm dodging bullets. We have to pack up and move. I can't put a house in my name, no utilities. They're really after me. Feds all over me, wanting to put me in a witness protection program, want me to become a witness. We went through such stuff. After that 13 months, like a fool, I violate my parole, go back to prison for three years. She was only 27 years old. I thought I was going to lose her. We had two children at that point. How we managed to have two children throughout all this crazy stuff was amazing. Okay? She couldn't even talk to me when I went back to prison. And, you know, my wife is different. She's, I'm more outgoing. She's more, you know, I'll stay at home. I'll support you in the ministry. I'll pray for you, and I'll take care of the family. It took me 20 years to get her to write her story because I said, Cam, all these women want to know how you put up with me. You know, you've got to tell them because they keep asking you whenever she's with me. She has more of a crowd around her than I do. I finally get her to write a book. You know, it took 20 years. And, uh, you know, she really put her heart in this. You know, it's funny. We were at a men's thing, and uh, I talked about my wife's book. So I go out to the table. Everybody's buying her book and not mine. This was a men's thing. I said, wait, hold on a minute. Something's wrong over here. What are you guys doing? I said, buying a girl's book? They said, yeah, Mike, we want to take this home because when, your wife, when our wife see how bad you were, they're going to love us even more. <laughs> I said, well, that makes sense. Okay, great. But, uh, but anyway, she's the story. So I go into prison. I take a, a plea, 10-year prison sentence, $15 million restitution. I gave up the plane, the helicopter, the whole bit. I go into jail. While I'm in there, all I can tell you is this. It becomes public that I'm walking away from the life. Something happened without getting into all the detail. Take too long. And all hell broke loose in my life. Feds all over me want to put me in a program. They lock me down. They're afraid to put me on a yard. I get through all of that. I get out on parole. Horrible time during parole. And then I violate. They take me away after 13 months. They told my wife, your husband will never see the street again. They went into my house with a search warrant. They cleaned us out, took every penny that we had, took all my bank accounts, took my car, went into my wife's purse, took every penny that she had. She didn't even have money to, to buy milk for the kids because they were fed up with me because I wouldn't cooperate. They throw me in a six-by-eight cell back in 1991, and they said, you're done. We don't want you to cooperate anymore. We're finished with you. We're indicting you on another racketeering case. We violated you on your parole. You'll never see the street again. That night, people, without a doubt, the worst night of my life. I'm in that six-by-eight cell. I'm 30, 38 years old. And I said, it's over. I'm done. They took all my money. Another racketeering case? You can't beat these cases with money. You're not beating them with a public defender. I said, my wife, they cleaned us out. This girl, she can't even buy milk for the kids. How's she going to wait for me now? 
She's 27 years old. She waited five years, 13 horrible months on parole. We're going to go through this again. I'm going to lose the girl I did all of this for. I said, they can't put me out on the yard. I got nothing but enemies. I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this six-by-eight cell. It's over. I want to tell you this. I have felt I have every emotion you can feel in life, from ecstasy right down to grief and everything in between. I've lived a pretty full life. But by far the worst emotion you can ever experience in your life is hopelessness. When you feel everything is done, everything that's dear to you is gone, you lost it all. It's the scariest feeling in the world. My heart hurt so much that night. It was a physical pain. It was coming through my chest. My head was pounding. I was, I was a wreck. A wreck. And I want to tell you this. I used to demean people that were suicidal. I call them weak. Can't face up to your problems. I don't do that anymore. I wasn't suicidal that night. I wasn't that brave. But I wanted to close my eyes and not wake up again. It was too painful for me to even think. That's how scared I was that night. Not of jail. Been through that. Of the loss. The loss. Especially a guy like me, a control guy, who thought I had everything handled. It was unbearable. And I want to tell you, I was angry with God that night because I had accepted Christ. Why not? My mother-in-law, my wife, accept Christ. He's going to forgive you your sins. Hey, great. I want some of that. I'm a sinner. Tell me what I have to do, Ma. Get on my knees, say a prayer, really try to feel it, mean it. Did I really mean it? I don't know. I wasn't ready. I thought I was because I wanted the, the benefit. But I remember my mother-in-law telling me, you've got to surrender your life to Jesus. I couldn't process that part. Surrender? Come on. God's going to think I'm weak. I'm not going to surrender. I've got to take care of myself. God will honor that. But you know what? I believe your acceptance of Christ is made whole and your surrender to Him because that's when He can work through you. I wasn't ready the first time. So I'm in there and I'm angry with God. I blamed Him for everything. I married the girl. I left the life. Look what you did to me. Feeling sorry for myself. Prison guard comes to my cell. Francis, you okay? You don't look good. I said, get out of here chased him. I said, I don't want to see any of you guys tonight. He left. He came back a minute later with this book. He pushes it through the slot on the door. It falls on the floor. I hear a thump. I'm kind of groggy. I look down. A Bible. I want a Bible. I don't want to read about God. I want a bottle of Prozac or something. I want to forget what I'm going through, right? I'm looking down at that Bible. I'm not exaggerating. I'm getting so angry, feeling sorry for myself, angry with God. I jump off the cot, pick up the Bible, slammed it against that cinder block wall as hard as I could. It's like everything came out of me. It took me about a minute. I said, you know what? It's only me and God in this cell. I believed in him. I said, I don't need another enemy. I got nothing but enemies. I picked up the book, and I was so desperate. I looked up at the ceiling. I said, hey, God, if you're really up there, you need to give me something to make me feel better tonight. I can't deal with this. I'm scared. Help me. And... I'm holding a book like this, and I'm, I'm being honest with you. I open it up like this, okay? I had nowhere to go. I didn't know what to do. I was a Catholic. You know, you read the catechism. You don't read the Bible. The priest reads the Bible from the pulpit on Sundays. And I open it up to the book of Proverbs. Now, is that a coincidence? No. You know why? I told you I'm a very analytical guy. I don't want to read about, you know, something else. I read Proverbs, and as I'm reading it, I'm blown away. I say, wow, this guy is so brilliant. Solomon is brilliant. You know, when God said to Solomon in the book of Kings, nobody before you will be as wise and nobody after you will be as wise as a reward for what he didn't ask for with the exception of Jesus, who had a little advantage, he was God. Nobody was as wise as Solomon. And I'm reading and I'm saying, wow, this is really intelligent. It makes sense to me. And all of a sudden I come to a verse that just stops me cold. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. Now, you know what? I was just complaining to God about what he did to me, and God responded to me through that verse. He said, you're complaining to me. You married the girl. Well, who'd you marry the girl for, Mike? Oh, you left the life. Well, what a great thing you did. Who did you leave the life for, Mike? Did you do it for me or did you do it for you? And then as if he said, if you've done it for me, yeah, you've got a lot of enemies, but I can deal with them. That's how I interpreted that verse that night. You know why? Because I believe this book, this Bible, you know this. You can read the same verse ten different times. It'll have ten different meanings because it speaks to you according to your needs at that moment. Amen? And that's how I interpreted that verse. And so it gave me a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of hope, and it caused me to read on a little further. 
And I read on and I came to a verse that's become the verse of my life, people. And it should be the verse of every one of your lives. There's so many verses in the Bible that apply to us, but it all starts here. Now I'm going to sign books. I've signed thousands of books in my life. At one point in time, I was embarrassed to sign books. Didn't sound right. My, you know, mob guys signing books. But then God put it in my heart. I never sign a book unless this verse is underneath. You will not see my name without it. Because God said, this is what you need to do, Mike. Make people aware of it. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will make your path straight. Now why did that apply to me that night? Trust in the Lord? It was like He was saying, Mike, you can't get out of this one. It's not your father. It's not because in Austria. It's not you. I'm the one that can help you here. And unfortunately, my son, you're going to be in this struggle for a couple of years. I didn't do it to you. You did it to yourself. But we're going to use this time to get your mind and your heart straight so that you can fulfill the purpose that I have for you. And as the story goes, 15 years later, here's where I am. And it all began in that cell because here's what happened. God said, I know you. You're a product of the street. And if I don't allow you to go through this, you're never going to be able to turn to me because I'll never get your attention on the street. You're too much a product of the street. And I have to admit that. I would have never accepted him in this way if I was on the street. He had to let me go through this. So those of you that are going through your struggle now, don't turn away from God. Turn towards Him and He will use it to make you a better person. He will use it to do, to do things in your life that you never dreamed or expected of. Don't look at all of these challenges as, why is this happening to me? Well, why not? Why is it happening to you? Why are millions of kids struggling and starving throughout the world where all they did was be born? Things happen in life, people. How are we going to deal with it? Are we going to turn towards God and say, okay, I get it. I'm going through it. I hate it like I hated every minute I spent in that cell. But God, do your work with me. Because I know you got a plan. I read this Bible inside out and upside down because I challenged God. And I challenged Him and I wanted to see. I want to know the good stuff before I know the bad. That's how I am. I read over 400 books, every faith that you can imagine. I studied it. And that's when I came out believing without a doubt in this book and my God and my Savior and hero, Jesus Christ. Now, I had no idea what he was going to do with me when I came out. Thank you. But I want to tell you this. This ministry, everything I got, I never planned anything, people. It's like he led me along. I learned how to do something I couldn't do before. I learned how to follow rather than lead. Now, my book, Blood Covenant. Guys, you want to read a mob story? It's a mob story. Ladies, it's a love story. A story about how me and my wife got together. They're making a movie on this book. It'll be out next year. That's not important. What is important is this. Read the inside cover. When I walked out of prison in 95, everybody predicted my death. And I mean everybody. Life magazine, quote, If he holds to what he has promised, will mark the first time a high-ranking member of the mafia will publicly walk away from his past and live. Ed McDonald, head of the organized crime strike force, my prosecutor, got on national TV in 1995 when I was released, and he said, quote, I wouldn't want to be in Michael Franzese's shoes. I don't think his life expectancy is very substantial. Very diplomatic guy. Bernie Welsh, the FBI agent, followed him to the podium that same day. Bernie wasn't as diplomatic. He said, quote, he will get whacked. My mother, I pray for my son every night. She had no idea what I was doing. She was so scared for my life. The night I walked into that room, Halloween night, 1975, six of us took an oath. I'm the only one alive today. Not one of those five men died of natural causes. A little more proof. You saw the Fortune magazine, 50 biggest and most powerful mob bosses in the country. Big article, huge article. They actually had a chart with the 50 of us on there. I was number 18 in rank, five behind Gotti at the time, the youngest guy on the list. Nonsense list. Don't ask me how they make something like that. They didn't ask for my tax returns, but it sold a lot of magazines. Not important. But what is important is this. Today, some 25 years later, out of the list of 50, 44 of those men are dead. Three of them that I know of are doing life in prison without parole, and I'm here to give praise and honor and glory to my Savior, my hero in life, Jesus Christ. You know why, people? 
Because when God has got a plan and a purpose for your life, and He does for every one of you sitting in that seat out there, nothing is going to stand in the way. No mob, no sickness, no death. Nothing will stand in the way of God fulfilling His purpose in your life except for you. Because our God is not an intruder. He's always an invited guest. Our God does not cause the bad things to happen in life. Don't blame Him. We live in a world. He never promised us heaven on earth. He promised us heaven in heaven, but He promised us that every step of the way throughout every struggle we have, that He would have our backs. And that's the most powerful thing you can hear on the street. I got your back, brother. God will have yours. Are you ready to make that decision? I pray you are. God bless. Thank you very much. It's communion time, and uh, amazing story. I can't help but think of the story of David when I hear Michael's story. And if you're not familiar in the Old Testament of the story of David, um, David got himself in a little trouble, has an affair with a neighbor lady. Um, she becomes pregnant with his child. Her husband returns from war. He has the husband killed to hide it all. And there's this guy named Nathan that comes and shows up and says, Hey, David, this isn't right. Points it out to him. And this is what David writes in Psalm 51. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then he, in verse 3, says this. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Um, you may not have lived the mob life. You may not have lived the life of David and had somebody killed. But I'm guessing, if you're like me, there's probably something in your life, uh, a sin that is always before you, like David says, something that maybe lingers around. Maybe it's something from your past. Maybe it's something going on right now that just keeps haunting you. It's the last thing you think of before you go to bed and maybe the first thing you think of when you wake up. Maybe it even wakes you in the middle of the night. Communion time is a time where we remember every week that no matter what's happened in our lives, whether you're Michael or just plain old you, um, God's taken care of all that through the sacrifice of his son. That's what we remember every week around the communion table. So we want you to know, if this is your first time here at Parkview, this isn't our table, it's the Lord's table. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to participate in communion with us. The trays are going to come by here in just a second. Um, there's two cups. They're stacked. And the bottom is the bread. Top is the juice. Make sure you grab both of those. Hold those, and we'll commune together in just a moment. All right? Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, the message of hope and redemption and the fact that no matter what has happened in our lives, we can never run too far from you. That your grace and the sacrifice of your son and his resurrection uh, gives us hope no matter what our situation is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.